0: today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight.
1: There still is, not only in the medical community, but within just the general population, a sense of that there is a moral failure in not being a certain size.
0: Today, Dr. Lisa Harris, a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst, joins me to discuss eating disorders in this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior Vice President and Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright. And joining the podcast is Dr. Lisa E. Harris. Dr. Harris is the president and a clinical psychologist at Third Year Psychology, PC, in New York City. She's also an adjunct assistant professor at John Jay College, City University of New York. So glad you could join us. Friend of the podcast, Dr. Holly Lofton, recommended you, so I want to welcome you to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: And to start off, could you describe your clinical practice setting?
1: Sure. Um, I'm in private practice. I work with a lot of patients that are dealing with uh, long-term chronic health issues. Those health issues can range in everything from HIV, AIDS, cancer, infertility. But the bulk of my practice is working with bariatric patients. So those are patients who are dealing with obesity Um, Often with many comorbid conditions, including diabetes, um, uh, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and the associated illnesses with obesity.
0: Great. And as everyone who listens to the podcast knows, I always ask, you know, how someone got on their career path in healthcare. Can you share your journey?
1: Sure. Um, My road here was actually a, a bit of a long one. I started out in mental health working as a substance abuse counselor. Then I became a clinical social worker, and I was working with um, HIV-AIDS patients, which I continued on into my clinical psychology studies, where in working with uh, a lot of health issues, um, obesity has become... An increasingly, uh, an increasingly big epidemic, not just in the United States, but around the world. I've seen this both from a professional standpoint as well as a personal standpoint. On my mother's side of the family in particular, there is a, a huge problem with diabetes um, to the point that it's even killed three first cousins of mine and I'm just not old enough to have um, three first cousins pass from diabetes. So it is a a huge problem, one that, you know, I feel both personally and professionally vested in.
0: And so I'd like to sort of tease out two different areas there because I think the first one is is that dealing with patients, you know, who have been diagnosed with obesity or, you know, are overweight and it's affecting their health, that's clearly very important. And Dr. Lofton and I have talked about this several times, and I'm a person who clearly acknowledges that obesity is a disease. And I think that there's a lot of folks out there who view it a different way. Even within my own profession, some folks view it more as a moral failing. I remember hearing somebody say, you just have to tell your patients to eat less and exercise more. And, you know, if it was that easy, everyone would do it. So what's your take when you maybe hear some healthcare professionals or other people think obesity isn't really a disease, it's a moral failing?
1: Well, this is something that I talk about with my patients all the time because um, there are a number of different ways of, of viewing obesity. First off, I want to state very, very clearly that I do support body positivity. That whatever size you are, so long as you're vested in your health and well-being. That is really key. Diabetes does not only affect, and type two diabetes in particular, does not only affect overweight people. And and we're not talking now about overweight. Um, Even for people that on paper have morbid obesity, if they're attending to their health and they don't have diabetes, they don't have any metabolic um, issues, you know, your body is beautiful as it is. What I'm referring to and the, the population that I work with are people that are suffering from metabolic dysregulation and that is resulting that their, their weight, their, um, body composition is causing a host of medical issues, not the least of which is, um, Diabetes or pre-diabetes, um, hyperlipidemia, hypercholesteremia, um, high blood pressure, um, and a host of other illnesses, including sleep apnea um, and difficulty moving around right. throughout space. That's a problem. And to be very clear, it's different from being a person of size.
0: Right, and that and that's sort of the other side of the discussion that I want to have. So when some patients come in with obesity, and, you know, it's really affecting their lives, there's clearly got to be some psychological impact as well. Can you sort of talk about sort of the typical things that you see beyond, you know, sort of the typical medical issues that you deal with with these patients?
1: Sure. There's a, a host of common features, not the least of which is a tremendous amount of internalized shame that they carry with um being uh, a person that is viewed as as other, regardless of their um, cultural, religious, um, ethnic background, people of uh, certain dimensions are gonna be viewed as other. And there still is, not only in the medical community, but within just the general population, a sense of that there is a moral failure in not being a certain size, of not having a certain look. And what ends up happening is that there's often um, a, a psychological cycle that can happen, which is that eating, look, when we're born, we take a breath and we start eating. So eating, as, eating is much more for us than simply taking in nutrition. Eating is uh, the first soothing behavior that we have. Eating is social. Eating is cultural expression. Eating is so much more than just taking a nutrition. And often it can become a very, very confusing process for a lot of people. So accordingly, there is a shame cycle, not just a metabolic or medical cycle that we find ourselves stuck in, but also this shame cycle of I'm eating because it is comforting and because it is social and it's bringing me pleasure, but now I feel bad about myself because I'm told that I'm not supposed to be eating or I'm not supposed to be eating this way. So now I'm a bad person, but why is this making me bad if it's making me feel so good? So now we're dealing with ambivalence, which is in psychology, ambivalence is more than just, well, you know, maybe I want to go to the movies or maybe I want to go for a walk. No, it's a much more powerful process of, I want this and that. And they're in opposition to each other. Right. And it's causing me suffering.
0: And we sort of talked about that a little bit with uh, Dr. Lofton and I, there's a lot of things that you can do to change your health. You can not smoke, you can not drink alcohol, you can not do this, but you can't not eat. Um, And It's clearly some people have, you know, a real, to be frank, love-hate relationship with food. And it's because I needed to live and then I, to your point, it also triggers a whole bunch of other things.
1: I I don't know. I am quite interrupt you, but I don't know who of us doesn't have to some extent or another a love-hate relationship with food. And from, uh, you know, from a psychological standpoint, we all find ourselves in a place of what's called splitting we tend to make certain foods good and certain foods bad. Pizza is bad. Chocolate is bad. Kale is good. And brown rice is or steamed vegetables are good. And the gray that is in between these two poles is often lost.
0: Exactly. And I think that that brings me to another point is that and we're sort of, you know, slipping into this other area I want to discuss is sort of I read several articles about the diet culture and how that is a really, really strong element of our own culture. Can you talk a little bit about that and your take on that?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because when you start looking into, um, you know, the origins of the diet culture, it actually started quite a while ago, over a century ago in the the late 19th century, when we were first able to start to refine flour. And what we didn't realize was that food had, uh, we were eating whole foods for the entirety of our species existence until the industrial revolution where we started refining it and we unintentionally started removing the nutritional components of food to make it more, um, you know, to make it more tasty, more rich. And then you had a whole bunch of people who were otherwise wealthy, prosperous and malnourished. And we had no understanding why. And thus nutritional science was born. And at which point we started being presented with a whole bunch of rules that kept changing and has persisted in changing about what is acceptable to eat, what is not acceptable to eat, how we're supposed to eat. And it, suddenly our own intuition, um, which we're all really born with as babies as to how to eat suddenly got removed from us. And we were taught that we don't know how to eat anymore and we need to follow these external rules. Um, and instructions on how to eat. And now we have absolutely no idea what we're doing. Is milk good for you or bad for you? Or eggs good for you or bad for you? Is fat good for you or bad for you? Or carbohydrates good for you or bad for you? And it makes us feel um, unagentic and unable to actually made, make healthy food decisions for ourselves. The, and the diet industry feeds off of that, so to speak, and is saying, we have the key. We have the secret sauce. We have the, you know, the, the special instructions that will lead you towards whatever your goals may be being thin, being muscular, being, uh, Rubenesque, whatever it may be. But you can't think for yourself. To make those decisions.
0: Yeah, they've cracked the code and you need to pay them X number of dollars so they'll give you the code.
1: Correct. Yeah,
0: and that's actually really sort of dovetails nicely into several of the other discussions I've had. I've had some, uh, you know, scientists that study these sort of healthy fat folks from Northern Finland who eat a lot of salmon and exercise and are cardiovascular animals, but they don't have a BMI that our culture would say is perfect. Um, you know, and then I talked to another scientist about the thrifty gene theory and how, and as someone of Irish ancestry, I am a beneficiary of the thrifty gene in that my, my relatives survived the potato famine. Um, and so people who are really thrifty with calories made it and the rest of them did not. I heard you say something else. And this makes me think a bit about something I heard when I was in training um, and I've read that some folks say, when do I talk to my kids about weight and diet? And I remember a pediatrician saying, don't. Um, I would like your take on that.
1: You know, this is a very I get asked this question an awful lot, particularly by my patients who are working hard to stay in recovery from their own eating issues. And, you know, I want to be very clear that the eating issues that I, I, I work with eating disorders, but I work with eating disorders from the other end of the spectrum. It's not undereating, but it's overeating. Um, whether it's binge eating disorders or compulsive overeating or overnutrition, um, which is we're, we're very familiar with the term being undernourished, but we're not so comfortable talking about being overnourished. And people really wanna know when they start having kids or if they have kids, how do I protect my children from my eating issues or from society's um, body, collective body dysmorphia and collective eating issues. And I think the best thing to do is to really help children start to become self-aware and to help them maintain their own self-awareness. Does this particular food make you feel good or make you feel bad? Yes, you may wanna be eating a lot of this. Can we also add in this other thing to help children not split? As remember before, I mentioned about splitting with regards to food, that it's not that foods are good for you or bad for you. What I tell my patients is, the only foods that are bad for you are the ones that make you physically sick. If you're allergic to selfish, then shellfish is by definition bad for you. Otherwise, it's all okay. But we have to learn how to be able to have an open palate and not, um, not categorize, not stick foods into the good or bad, but rather allow children to explore what they're eating and to not make it taboo or, um, you know, otherwise restrict from them.
0: Right. And I was really lucky that in my residency training, uh, several pediatricians, actually, I was taking my pediatrics rotation as my oldest daughter was born, and their advice was when you start introducing foods, introduce, you know, a bunch of foods and don't go with the sweet foods first. But I also, this was a a while ago, was making my own baby food at home. I decided that I'm going to, like, squish vegetables and um, and give those. And it is really amazing, though, to see how the human palate, the taste buds of a six month old child are like, yes, I like that sweet thing more so than I like that squishy vegetable. It, it, you know, it's clearly hardwired, but I think you're right. Um, I also think, and and this is another thing to broaden the palate of children. I have two daughters. They could not have more different palates. It's yes. amazing. Yeah, one would try one would try anything, and the other one's like, nope, it's got to be this, that or the other thing. I so think I think that's really great.
1: Allowing, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that allowing a child, being patient with a child that's stuck in what what are called food jacks, because there are, I mean, I don't know of any kid that doesn't go through a period of like, if it's not, you know, uh, I don't know, beige, I don't want to eat it. Um, that is a very common thing. And sometimes parents panic because they're afraid that their kids are never going to want to eat a leafy green thing again. What I think is very important is to relax and allow a kid to go through that while you still yourself are modeling healthy behaviors. And I think that what's lost on a lot of parents is you need to look at what you're eating or not eating. Are you trying to tell your kids, do as I say, not as I do? Yes, I do. Because right. if you're not eating, in a, in an open palette sort of way and having a variety of foods available with all sorts of different colors orange and green and purple and brown and white and red and everything if if you don't if you're not eating that yourself, why on earth would your kids do that? Because right. they're looking at you to model for them.
0: And and it's it's really interesting. Um, you know, having in my residency, you know, you do a pediatric rotation and I would say 15% of the parents that come in are like, my kid's not eating. And you want to say to them like, oh, they're eating. They're just not eating as much as you think they should, you know, because of different growth curves. You know, a, a toddler typically stops at right two years old. They get a little, I mean, I guess from your aspect, there'd be more sort of the uh, assertion of self. But from us, from a metabolic thing, the kid's not growing. Kid's not growing, they're not going to eat. And that's hysterical sometimes when you just say that to the parents, they're like, "But I had they have to eat, I have to feed them." And you're like, "Okay, that's a deeper issue. You maybe you should go talk to the nurse oh, practitioner
1: yeah. because parent, you know, parents understandably panic because uh-huh. you know they want their kids to thrive and they want their kids to, um, you know, be open. And I think that you know we as parents sometimes forget what we were doing at That age or at younger ages, sometimes there's just, sometimes we don't feel like eating and we have overridden that because we are again, stuck in this diet mentality of, I don't really know how to feed my own body. I have to be told. Ergo, my child doesn't really know and they have to be told. So we're unfortunately setting up this really dangerous precedent for kids to not trust their own um, bodily signals.
0: Yeah. And so I'd like to sort of switch gears a little bit on the diet culture and sort of, and what I started talking with Dr. Lofton about is things that I saw in the news about the use of the GLP-1 agonists in particularly ozempic or semaglutide, which I have, you know, studied about and looked for patients with diabetes and patients with obesity. But it has, I think, become sort of De rigueur in the diet culture, that now people who are normal weight or maybe even underweight are now seeking out this drug. Dr. Lofton has a lot of experience with that. Have Have you had any experience with um, or oh, yes. knowledge about that?
1: Yeah, no, I I do because I have uh, you know quite a number of my patients on it, and um, you know, look, I've been familiar with the I've been familiar with the development of the GLP ones. Over time, going back uh, into the the late '90s when it was starting to first come out, and um, there was the the early research was, you know, why do uh, Gila monsters? not get fat, but their tails do and then they starting to to shrink and and it was fat it's been fascinating to watch the development of this medication And it really has been a game changer and it really has been a tr- a gift to so many people. And I gotta tell you, it actually is making me kind of crazy to see this medication being misapplied. Uh, and prescribed to people that don't have metabolic disorders, that don't even have that much weight to lose. They may have 10 pounds, maybe 20, possibly even 30 pounds, which could be um, successfully done with uh, behavioral changes and with dietary changes. But the desire for a quick fix, the desire to bypass Any kind of meaningful uh, suffering, and by that I mean learning how to tolerate the distress associated with change, which we all deal with, we all have to learn to deal with, has been bypassed when, you know, you're just going to take this medication for a couple of months, you'll lose the weight very quickly and you'll be fine, uh, is not really teaching people how to engage meaningfully with their own bodies. Right. I don't. Go ahead.
0: Oh, no, it just seems like this is the the typical we're actually. Yeah, sure. I'll take something that has a risk of medullary thyroid cancer. I don't know that much about um, other people really need it. I'm just going to short circuit my brain. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to to go to a couple of lectures with Dan Drucker, one of the, you know, the docs who was very early on in the GLP ones. And, you know, this goes very deep into your brain. This is not. This is medicine. This isn't like um, you know just um, something that you should be able to flip a switch on and off for if you don't have some serious uh, you know disorder.
1: Right, and I think that it, it's really um, grossly overprescribed at this point in time, as evidenced by uh, the the shortages that we're seeing in these very, very powerful medications that are not meant for people who do not have metabolic issues, who do not have diabetes, who are not pre-diabetic, who don't even have that much weight to lose. And what people are not really taking into consideration is, uh, look, these medications, their, their area of action is not centrally in the brain. Not centrally, meaning that as a GLP-1 agonist, its its area of action is going to be, you know, as you know, uh, as a physician, on the beta cells in the Isle of Langerhans, the pancreas. What people are not considering is, is that when you start messing with the metabolic system, it's going to start at the pancreas and eventually get to the brain and start changing a whole cascade of hormonal processes in your body that ends up with your brain. It's not going to just get you to stop wanting to eat. It's going to do a whole bunch of stuff.
0: And they really haven't been on, they've been on the market a while. And, you know, it's always a, 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 you know, a cost. It's a benefit risk assessment, you know, and for some people that, you know, assessment means we should put them on the medication for somebody who, so Dr. Lofton brought up you know, she saw a patient, I think the day before our podcast, somebody wanted to go to a, like to the beach for a week um, and it was coming in a month and And the person wanted to, to take the medication or someone who had just gotten out of college who now is working a desk job, but still eating like they're in college, you know, and has a little bit of belly fat. And, you know, to your point, you know, it's time to sort of turn into a grown up and or into a person and sort of deal with some of the circumstances that are going on.
1: Well, I I think that a big portion of this, again, has to do with um, helping my patients learn distress tolerance. There is a simple reality that is lost because of the diet industry, which is that weight loss is uncomfortable. That's not to say it's misery. Let me be very, very clear. Weight loss does not need to be misery. It's become a miserable process because nobody wants to deal with discomfort. And there is a huge space in between discomfort versus misery. And people wanna bypass the discomfort and are thus setting themselves up for misery when it really just needs to be, let's go together through the process of how to be able to tolerate this in a meaningful way that you can have lasting changes that you can carry with you throughout your life.
0: And so for the last question, uh, I've been listening to this podcast that has experts on it. They're historians. But the host has come up with something called the nuance window. And I think that that's actually a great concept where um, the, the we ask the expert, is there something that you think you need a couple of minutes to sort of help folks understand in a very nuanced way. And I'll stop asking a question. It can be something that you feel strongly about, something that we haven't covered, or something that you think folks need to be aware of. So is there a topic like that that you'd like to discuss for a few minutes?
1: Sure, I, and I think it's it's sort of um, you know continuing on with what I was saying before about weight loss is that we are really not um, adequately educating people on a few very basic realities that um, first off, when it comes to um, your bodies, whatever's been happening with it, if you're overweight, if you're obese, if you're uh type two diabetic, we often get, um, as healthcare professionals, we may set things up to blame the patient and we have to be able to pull back from blame and rather educate our patients that it's not their fault But from this point forward, now with education as to what's going on with your body, it is now your responsibility. It's not your fault, but it's your responsibility. And in taking responsibility for your health and your well-being, you have to be able to learn to tolerate a bit of distress, a bit of discomfort with the process. That does not mean misery, that does not mean suffering, but rather to make it a meaningful process, to be able to start to listen to what's going on with our bodies moment to moment. And what I really try to teach my patients is mindfulness. Mindfulness regarding eating, mindfulness regarding hunger. I can't tell you how many people don't know what it is to actually be hungry because they're often so afraid of the experience of hunger that they will preemptively eat in order to stave off that experience. And we don't need to be afraid of hunger. I'm not saying that we should be starving ourselves because the other side of it is getting into a place of taking all this medication to shut down the experience of hunger I've heard some people say, well, it's causing instant eating. You know, something like Ozempic is causing instant eating disorders because now you no longer feel like eating. No, there are a whole bunch of signals going Mm -hmm. on from your body, including lightheadedness. Mm -hmm. That's a hunger signal, including fatigue. That's a hunger signal, including fogginess in thinking. That is a hunger signal. Start paying attention to what's going on in your body. And start listening for when satiety is happening. Not full, not stuffed, not can't move like right after Thanksgiving, but satiety. Am I in fact satisfied right now? And start to develop food security, meaning that there is food in the fridge. There is food in your pantry. You don't have to necessarily consume everything that's on your plate right now to feel satisfied. Put down um, what you're doing and take a moment to be in your body. Do I want to eat more? Okay, eat some more. Am I actually okay with where I am at this moment? Okay, maybe you don't need to eat more. Do I actually feel like eating uh, you know, a sandwich or a hamburger, but is it gonna be a good sandwich? Is it gonna be a good hamburger from like a you know, from a, a, a good steak restaurant? none of these foods are necessarily good or bad. Start listening to your body and actually feeding your body as well as your spirit without doing it in a way that is hurting yourself.
0: And I couldn't have said that any better myself. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris. This has been an amazing conversation.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.
0: And that's today's episode of the Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining us. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa flash briefing medical news roundup and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guest, Dr. Lisa Harris, and to Sean Mullen, Norm Dion, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we'll cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.